in the mental health field you made it seem like it's all in your head, all in your head. the landlord can hijack the rent by 20 percent that impacts people's mental health can't have a profit through the mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy Hello and welcome to It's Not All in Your Head, a podcast by two therapists exploring how the outside world impacts people's inner lives. My name is Max Golding. I'm a mental health therapist practicing in Santa Barbara, California. My official title is LMFT or Licensed Marriage Family Therapist. I have a master's degree in clinical psychology. I'll pass it over to you, Harriet. Who are you? Good. Hello. Hello. I'm Harriet Fraud. My uh, title, although I don't really believe in titles much, is a mental health counselor. I have a doctorate in child development and marriage and family counseling. I got into this field because I was teaching psychology and my students wanted to see me as a therapist. So I segued in and then took an exam to qualify me when licensure was required. In any case, here I am. My interest in is in the intersection of mental health and our social and economic lives. And I speak and write about that intersection. That might be a good segue for us to talk about how we met and why we're making this podcast. Good. I kind of found you before you found me. Yeah. I've been a, a big <laughs> fan of uh, the you know economic update and democracy at work and all of that for be a year plus. And so I had been somewhat familiar with your work through that, like through YouTube videos and podcasts and things. And the title's uh, Capitalism Hits Home. Is that correct? Yes, it is. And I had felt every time I listened to it, man, this lady really gets it. I don't really know a lot of other therapists that think this way. This is so cool. I just developed this idea in my head of like, well, I mean, if I if I could ever talk to this person, that would be so cool because we share so many um, beliefs and values and perspectives on the mental health world and how it all intersects into the economic and the political. Uh, so I emailed you. I think it was in December, wasn't it? Yes. December 2019, the, the pre the pre COVID-19 days. Right. I, I emailed you and said, uh, hey, you're so cool. <laughs> Let's talk about stuff. And. I think we spoke by phone next and yes and I welcomed your inquiry because the whole point is to get the word out to people to share what we know in this time of real despair in the United States mm-hmm. and that was despair even before COVID-19 the loneliness and despair of Americans the context in which Harry and I ended up speaking about a, a shared concern, I think, and I'll let Harriet speak for herself, but from from my view over the only maybe five years or so that I've been a therapist, I started to notice an understandable focus almost entirely on the inner lives of people, on the emotional and the cognitive and the relational aspects of people's lives, while also omitting or forgetting about or neglecting to consider the economic, the political all the larger systemic forces that impact people's inner lives. And I discovered this through a series of many conversations with other therapists, conversations within different nonprofit organizations that focus on providing mental health services to the community. And I started to get the impression over time that one, I was kind of crazy. <laughs> and two, I was building up this sort of resentment because the part of me that thought I wasn't crazy was telling me, these people don't care. And I, I vacillated between sort of this like 
maybe embarrassment and shame for being intensely political and sort of resentment toward other people. And I, I never found a resolution to that. So when I found Harriet's stuff online, I thought, okay, this is at least one other mental health professional who does seem to understand that if a law is passed, it has these trickle-down effects that can cause what we call depression symptoms. Or if there's a, a cultural norm called like patriarchy, like that's going to trickle down and cause anxiety symptoms. So when I spoke with Harriet initially and I expressed that these were some of my frustrations and observations, she seemed to just kind of agree with me like yeah that that is kind of how therapists tend to be and I'm in California and she's in New York so I, I don't know if this is a blanket statement we can say that's like a coast-to-coast -coast, uh, yes USA thing or North American thing but we did seem to agree that there was a need for mental health professionals to speak to other mental health professionals through something like a podcast to say hey let's look at this it's not all in your head it's not all in people's heads there's a wider set of forces at play, and we need to talk about that. Well, my experience is different from Max's in that I was born into a culture of the left, that my father was a leftist, and I, as a little girl, I watched the blacklisted artists perform in hootenannies, they were called, where they were allowed to perform for a left audience. I then became an activist and was a child of the 60s, which was a very politically active, conscious time in the United States against the war in Vietnam and for civil rights. I then was a founding mother of the women's liberation movement, which it was called at the time. So I was comfortable being a therapist with a um, political and economic and social awareness, even though that awareness was not shared by my colleagues, which is something I really could not fail to notice in a postdoctoral seminar at Yale. I was appalled at the class blindness and really class cruelty of the place. Mm. And I totally agreed with Max when he called me. And so we are creatures of a common ideology and of a common belief and a common need to include the mental health world in the political and economic awareness that we need in life and in our practice. And maybe something to be clear on, too, is that we're, although we want our audience to be other mental health professionals, anyone within that, so also maybe social workers or school counselors, or next up would be people who are, uh, quote unquote, consumers of mental health services or clients, or I don't really know how to, how to talk about it. And we will get into how the mental health industry and the healthcare industry is an industry. And we don't, we don't like that it's an industry, but these are the terms that are used, you know, consumer of mental health services, it's a bizarre concept. But so the providers, the consumers, um, and just society at large, anybody who's interested in mental health and anybody who's interested in uh, economics and politics and all those kinds of issues, because they do all intersect. You, you really can't disconnect any of these things from, from the other things. Like you can't just talk about somebody has depression as an individual, and so you treat them as an individual, there's definitely some benefit to an individual coming to see a therapist, and in some cases, seeing a psychiatrist and taking meds or whatever. But the moment that we try to separate an individual from the context they're in, and we try to only treat the individual as if they're not in a context, we start playing a very dangerous game. Yes. I also want to add that 
just as the therapy world seems rather blind to what's going on in the economy and society, likewise, the social science world seems rather blind to psychology. And when they talk about it, they talk about having read Freud or something, but not applying any of the insights to their work or themselves personally. So I think they too might be an audience. I, I want to say, I think most people, when they start these kinds of things, they want to say, I want everyone to be my audience. And we, <laughs> we you know, we probably can't, like we want to cast yeah. as wide a net as possible. But obviously, we, we have to stick, stick mainly to our scope of expertise, which is mental health, I guess, on paper, right? Like, that's what our yes. licenses and, and things say. But we are both, uh, we've had a few conversations leading up to this conversation, and it seems clear that Harry and I are both voracious readers, consumers of news and research, and we both are pretty tapped into a lot of different movements and political efforts to make broader, uh, more positive systemic changes in the world. So we're going to try to integrate all of that as much as we can into what our quote-unquote expertise is in mental health. I'm nodding my head in agreement with everything you say. <laughs> cool. I am too. Whenever you talk, I'm like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Should we cover that I'm old and you're young? Sure. We Want can. We, yes. Okay. We are, we are from different generations mm -hmm. that need to understand and be enriched by one another. I am 78 years old and have been active since I was in high school and um, have been a therapist and a mental health counselor for 45 years, whereas Max is young and has another perspective. Sure. I am 35 years old, and I, <clears throat> I've been practicing. I mean, I've only been licensed, right, I think, a little under a year. And before that, it was, I was under somebody else's license for like four years, so... I've been practicing formally for about five years, and I've been engaged in all kinds of activism. Uh, probably the easiest thing to find uh, that there's like a record of online is would be climate <laughs> climate activism, like climate justice activism. But I've uh, been engaged in a lot of stuff over the years. And I'm in California. I grew up in California. I grew up in the Bay Area of California, um, you know, home of the Black Panthers. And so typically, <laughs> typically kind of like, you know, it's it's common to see a little bit more like kind of radical left politics in the Bay where I'm from. Um, it seems like, Harriet, you grew up in New York City. Yes, I did. Um, so in a different time. But, yeah, I think that's important to address as well. That We both um, we come from different generations, from somewhat different um, socioeconomic backgrounds. And very um, much. And then obviously gender plays a role. And and also we're both, you know, we're two white people. So we're not going to be able to, uh, from any experiential point of view, uh, speak on, say, what it's like to be a, a black therapist or like a Latino therapist or something like that. Uh, so, you know, we're not going to step out of our lane and pretend like we know stuff we don't in that sense. But there are some, I think, some very beautiful uh, differences between us across these coasts from which we're recording mm. the podcast, from age and gender and experience and class, um, or at least class background. I think that will uh, make the podcast more enriching, right? That we're not we have similar views, but we actually have very different backgrounds. Yes, indeed. We're from different coasts and we're from different socioeconomic coasts as well. And it's interesting. I lived for 38 years in New Haven, Connecticut, mm -hmm. where 
the Panthers also originated in New Haven, Connecticut. So we're both in uh, on locations of where the Panthers originated. I did not know that. That that could be a whole other. That could be probably a whole episode <laughs> just talking about that. Uh, maybe like how Black Panthers and mental health or something would be a really cool episode. All that said, different generations, different backgrounds, coming from different coasts, um, maybe somewhat different perspectives, but mostly it seems like we're relatively aligned. And Yes. But all that said, I'm wondering, Harriet, if you would feel comfortable getting into that idea that you'd expressed before to me about the so-called four co-conspirators. I would. One is doctors who um, are part of a profit system. The second is hospitals. Hospitals are enriched by the doctors who recommend those hospitals, and uh, they need to make a profit as well, or at least to be solvent. They're not financed by the government. Then there's also insurers who lock into this system, and psych pharma, which are the huge psychopharmaceutical companies that benefit from the diagnoses that the doctors give and the hospitals give as they give, excuse me, psych medications, which are the most profitable of all medications in the pharmaceutical industries. They are multi-billion dollar profit-making pills that are given out, which is why the United States, although less than a sixth of the globe's people uses more than 66% of the psych drugs in the whole world. Okay, to review, you said it's uh, doctors, hospitals, insurers, and... Uh, big, big Pharma. Big, big Pharma, right? Like, I'm, I'm mindful right now that we are in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. And in our second episode, we're going to talk about COVID and mental health, like, really extensively. This is going to be the whole episode. But... A lot of people probably right now are having a lot of interactions with doctors within hospitals, possibly uh, with their insurance companies. I don't know how much pharma is playing a role necessarily, but some listeners may be wondering, like, are you saying doctors are bad? Are you saying hospitals are bad? What are you really trying to say here? So can you clarify what you mean by all those things? Yes. Doctors have a problem between their wish, if they have one, to heal people and their need to pay back the many hundreds of thousands of dollars they need to pay back for their education, or just their need to have the wealth that marks them as successful Americans, between their healing impulse and their practice is the need for money. We're not a public health system. And so in order to get more money, doctors feed into the medical and psychological, pharmaceutical, industrial complex. Wow. Psychiatrists are mainly psychopharmacologists. People come in trouble and they match that person's personal pain to a pill, which they administer. They know that insurers will not pay them the full amount for an hour, so they give 15 minutes and charge for an hour and get a third to a quarter of what, they would get from a private client and amass private enormous amounts of money because they see so many people for 15 minutes each, put in an hour, and get compensated by insurers. It's an interlocking system of doctors, hospitals, insurers, and the psychopharmaceutical industry. 
which are all profiteers here. You can see it even in New York City, where we have a mayor who has stepped up to the occasion and tried to address the mental health and physical health crisis that we have with COVID-19. However, he cut out or he cooperated with cutting out 20,000 hospital beds for the public, public hospitals, because they cost him money. And as a mayor, he's working to save money. These are the contradictions. You want to serve people, but you want to make money. And the money's between your healing and your profiteering, or at least making a lucrative living and feeling yourself successful. These are the contradictions of a capitalist system Hmm. in which mental health is caught. So also to clarify, so you're obviously not saying doctors are bad, hospitals are bad, none of that kind of stuff. You're, you're pointing out a sort of systemic reality, which is that each player within the game as it's designed is whether they want to or not, it seems almost forced to administer health related services. And this is physical health, mental health in service of profit, more in in service of care because of the way the game is set up. So, That's right. Yeah. Even if it isn't just for profit, that has to be there. The money consideration has to be there. We're not like other countries that pay a certain amount to for mental health practitioners or physical health practitioners, and they don't allow it to get too absor- exorbitant, so that um, people make a living without profit and without money considerations coming into their practice. Unfortunately, this is the system. I don't even think that the people who head the psychopharmaceutical industry are bad. They just think I'm, I'm good at my job because I'm amassing a lot of money. More, more for my company. I'm succeeding. It's a set of values that taints our profession. And this could be also another episode at another time of talking about something called the nonprofit industrial complex, something I've been Mm -hmm. studying pretty intensely for the last couple of years. Something I learned recently is that roughly 60% of hospitals in the United States are registered as nonprofit organizations, 501c3s, which is very bizarre because apparently the studies are showing that nonprofit hospitals actually make more profit than for-profit hospitals because nonprofits don't have to pay federal income taxes and other forms of taxes you can just redistribute that income within the executive and managerial tiers of the hierarchy of the hospital to the point where for example i'm actually forgetting his name there's this one nonprofit hospital executive who makes i think 8 or 9 million dollars a year now mm-hmm. whether or not that money is related to the quality of care within a nonprofit hospital or a non or a hospital in general. It, I have a feeling that there is not a strong correlation, right? That no. the more money the executive makes, the higher quality the care is within the hospital. <laughs> I, I have never looked into research on this, but I'm just going to hypothesize right now that there is no strong correlation between those two things. The same thing could probably be applied to doctors. A medical doctor who is not a trained psychiatrist, but is just a general doctor 
can get reimbursed lots and lots and lots of money within a 15-minute period determining, oh, you definitely have major depressive disorder, so here is an SSRI such as Prozac or Zoloft or something, and they will get reimbursed as an individual. They get, get a lot of money. The hospital will get a lot of money, and the insurance company will get a lot of money, and the pharmaceutical company is going to get a lot of money from this 15-minute span of time that they supposedly were able to diagnose a person with this very, very complex disorder that we call depression. Depression is not just caused by what's in your head. It's also caused by the relationships in your life. It's caused by your employment status. It's caused by potentially racial or gender-based uh, or sexual orientation-based forms of oppression that are going on in your life. So for a doctor to be able to do that and to make so much money and to make all these other people so much money, this is the thing we're critiquing much more than the doctor as an individual or the executive as an individual. It's that we have a system that incentivizes and normalizes this process, that this is how healing is supposed to occur in our society. You somehow slot healing into a profit-making model, and what we get is not great mental health care. If you look at all the statistics over the Real last bad. Yeah, if you look at everything over the last couple decades, suicide rates are up, anxiety levels are up, depression's up, people are more afraid of each other. We have not become a more mentally healthy society. We're not more connected. But there is a lot of money flowing upwards into the pockets of all the folks within this framework Harriet's talking about, the four co-conspirators model. Yes, indeed. And it's really important what you said, Max, because within a money system, a nonprofit hospital nonetheless needs money. One of the beautiful illustrations, beautiful in a rather horrible beauty way, is that the Sackler family, which owns Purdue Pharma, which marketed OxyContin, and and by the way, OxyContin started the wave that killed 600,000 people since 1999. However, one of the ways they avoided being detected for a long time is they set up all sorts of chairs at at various hospitals. They financed hospitals. They financed wings of hospitals. They made fellowships at medical schools. And the money that a nonprofit makes is a mark of that nonprofit's success. And so that they danced with people who are killing people for profit, i.e. the Sackler family. And that's because not because they're evil or that they didn't care that hundreds of thousands are dying from overdoses from a falsely marketed drug, but because they needed the money. Money is an indicator of success. And that's a real problem. And that's what Max and I are addressing, because it it is a shadow cast over the mental health and physical health, but we're talking about mental health system in the United States, which is why our people are one of the more unhealthy people in the world in terms of suicide, in terms of drug abuse, in terms of jail, in terms of child abuse, in terms of wife abuse, and so on. People do tend to think of mental health as something where there's kind of two options, like either your first line of 
intervention is you just go to a psychiatrist because you say, I'm feeling really depressed and I need to go take some pills, which again, not mm-hmm. blaming anybody. I've taken antidepressants before. A lot of people have. Um, it's, I think it's like one in four women are currently on an SSRI antidepressant, mm. and, you know, whatever the overall population is taking a ton, but women take a lot more than men on average. And the other line of intervention is therapy, like psychotherapy, what Harriet and I do, except people are so used to a quick fix and they'll say, well, fix me, you know, tell me what to do. And that tends not to be how it works because the way mental health tends to work is that our minds are connected to other people and our interactions in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in our cultures, in our economies, in our societies. And so therapy tends to be a, a bit of a long road. Usually we'll say that, you know, six to 12 months is like the average amount that is recommended if you go to see a therapist. And a lot of people really just kind of want a quick fix, especially with kids. Like I work with kids and parents say, hey, I'm dropping my kid off. Can you fix them? And, you know, we go, <laughs> no, we can't. I can't, you, can't yeah. you, you can't do that. Like you don't just drop off your kid uh, and we fix them. It's not how it works because it's all about relationships and connection. Yeah, that's really a very important point because one of the things that afflicts people is a terrible loneliness because in a transactional society where, you know, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? You know, it's about what do you get? What do you get? You really have nobody, including yourself, who wants to know who you are and help you. And so that one of the healing aspects of what we do is show because we feel it and we're informed, we hear people and we try to figure out what their needs are and we try to figure out how they can sort them out so that they can live with themselves better and live better in the world. And, you know, often children are like kind of background music to parents who are self-absorbed in their own worlds and no one sees these little people and no one sees the big people either. And so that in our society in which one out of four people has no one to talk to in the worst emergency, having someone who helps you know yourself and who's interested is very healing Mm -hmm. and different from a pill. Something else we wanted to talk about in this first episode is how we are defining mental health, mental illness, and mental disorders within this for-profit system. And so the best way to initiate that conversation is by talking about something called the DSM, or uh, Diagnostic Statistical Manual. We're now in something called the DSM-5, the DSM-1, and there was the 2, the 3, the 4, the 5. And I think it was in the DSM-3, I don't think 4, but the DSM-3, homosexuality was listed as a mental disorder. One brief consideration is that the DSM has always been constructed within a social, cultural, political, and economic context. So let's just keep that in mind. Let's, let's invent a diagnosis real quick. Let's call it the, uh, <clears throat> the COVID-19 syndrome, where uh, it's COVID-19 has created a mass hysteria of people being paranoid about dying or something. And then you create a bullet list of symptoms. And then you have a couple pages describing where it comes from and all that kind of stuff. You could theoretically get that to be published into the DSM-6, say. 
as a result of that, COVID-19 could hypothetically create a whole new chapter of mental health industry profit accumulation because now the insurance companies are saying, great, there's this sociological phenomenon that has created a mental disorder that now we can, we can have people bill for so that we can make more money. So I'm hoping listeners are kind of seeing how this is, this is actually how the DSM works. And it's not to say that, say, depression yeah. is fake or anxiety is fake or trauma is fake or something like that. But the way the DSM has been constructed within our culture, which is a capitalist, uh, for-profit, market-driven culture, has really kind of distorted what internal mental suffering is. And we can't separate the diagnoses in the DSM from that context in which the DSM was written. I think that's really important. According to Joel Covell, a very wonderful left psychiatrist who has died, but he wrote a long time ago about the formation of the DSM, which was formed in collusion with the drug companies to plug every bit of human pain into some kind of a a diagnosis towards a pill to solve it. And... um, so that and that is a perversion. A good friend of mine who went to a psychiatric nurse convention recently remarked to me about the neon signs of drug companies hmm. talking to with little booths talking to psychiatric nurses because the flow of profit and pain is automatic in our field and we really have got to be aware of it in order to change it. Because if you're market-driven, you think about the market. If you're driven to heal, you think more about healing and you're not distracted by market considerations, which is why most of the world that has any kind of money has universal health care, which we don't. Okay, so I want to speak on one last thing related to the DSM, which is something called inter-rater reliability. Think of it like this. Like, let's say there's one patient and they go to see five different doctors or therapists. How much agreeability will there be across those clinicians of what the diagnosis is? So if you had perfect agreement, every single clinician says, oh, this is major depressive disorder or this is borderline personality disorder, that would be presumably a good sign because then you'd see that there is such validity to the diagnosis that it's it's almost obvious to any mental health professional who's uh, diagnosing, it's, it's obvious that it's real, and it's obvious that this person is actually suffering from this particular diagnosis. If you had really terrible agreement across all those clinicians, you'd have to question the validity of the diagnoses themselves, right? So right. if there's a numerical system that is used in statistics, and you're supposed to have above a certain threshold of a certain decimal point number to show that there is enough agreement for a diagnosis to actually be published into the DSM. There is actually really low inter-rater reliability for a lot of diagnoses in the DSM for the DSM-5. The National Institutes of Mental Health have called attention to the fact that the diagnostic statistical manual is inadequate in that it doesn't show the origin of people's problems. However, they don't have the money to advertise their viewpoint whereas the big pharmaceutical companies have direct ads to consumers as well as heavy ads to practitioners. By the way, we are the only country in the developed world that allows direct-to-consumer drug ads. But 
what you have is you have the voice of the profiteering pharmaceutical industry drowning out the voices even of our own National Institutes of Mental Health. That's what the profit system can do. Just wanted to interject that point. That's a great point, Harriet. Uh, Thank you for that. What we're kind of hoping to do over the next uh, several weeks and months with this podcast is to try to really drill down as deeply as possible into each one of these topics and make it meaningful and make it relatable so that everyday people can listen in and, and feel like they're learning something about our mental health care system and all the intersections between uh, their own inner lives and the larger system around us. And in particular, we're hoping that other mental health professionals can tap into this conversation and learn something as well as uh, chime in. And we actually don't yet have an email <laughs> set up or a website or anything like that, but we do want to hopefully by episode two or three have something set up where listeners can ask us questions, share their thoughts, and maybe uh, at some point in the future even have people call in or something because we do want this to be interactive and conversational. So, Yes, indeed. We want to include people in this discussion. This is our initial podcast. We welcome you all and hope you'll tune in again.